everyone, and welcome to episode 2 of the Film Score podcast. This is your host, Nick, the Film Score. Today I'll be talking with Tom and Daisy, the composer duo behind 222. Together they've scored around 30 features and short films over the last several years, their most recent feature being Clay's Redemption, a mythologically injected noir action film. Their score is a jazz synth total slab of chaos, and it's out now on all major streaming services, although I highly recommend giving a listen on Bandcamp. The best track to listen to is Since When Were You Afraid of Death? It's the closing track, and it is absolutely wild. I appreciate you joining me today, and if you've listened previously, thank you. And so far, the reception has been great, but I hope to keep improving for the listening experience. Now, sit back, strap in, and enjoy the conversation. Tom and Daisy, I really appreciate the two of you sitting down to join me. So how have you guys been doing recently? Yeah, good. And I think, basically, we're rescheduling the whole of 2020, aren't we? It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that feels that that's the 2020 vibe. Let's reschedule everything and yeah, because you never know what's going to happen. Keep on moving days around until things fit, because yeah, don't set your watch by twenty twenty. <laughs> I'm glad that it seems like you two have been able to at least stay busy during twenty twenty. At least as of right now, or as of today, the the recording, you've got a feature film coming out tomorrow. Oh, got to be exciting. It is. Uh, so it's premiering at the Drive-in, North London somewhere. <laughs> uh, a, it's the first first cinema that I've been to in, well, we've been to in seven or eight months yeah. now. Oh, actually, no, I think Joker was the last film that we saw in the cinema, so probably a little bit earlier. So it's the first time that we're going to see a film on a big screen in quite some time. It's, it's, obviously, it's exciting being able to watch a film that we've worked on on the big screen as well. And it's just like almost any single afternoon where we get out of the flat is, is, a, is a good day. And not to mention that it's a driving movie and for UK people, that's not our thing. We don't get to do that. You know, we grew up on it in films and movies as kids. So it's very much like, it's a really exciting retro uh, experience for us. So yeah, our very first driving movie experience is a film that we wrote the music for. That's really cool. And you know, you say it, that that's an American thing and maybe that's the silver lining of the coronavirus is for a very long time, it like existed in the US only in movies. So they're finally popping back up because I don't think I've been to one since I was maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 years old. I haven't gone to one recently, but it's at least on the list of possible things to do. Yeah, so that's really cool. And that's uh, Clay's Redemption, right? That's right, yeah. Can you give a little synopsis on it? Because when I looked it up, the synopsis, at least on IMDb, was both very vague and elicited like a zillion questions. I think it was something along the lines of Clay seeks redemption in this world of gods and immortals. And seeing stills and little clips and names of characters, it's neon-soaked, but there's demons and gods. And seeing all that combined, I was wondering, like, <laughs> what, the, what the hell is this movie? We just described our first bit of scoring experience. <laughs> like, what, what the hell is this movie? Especially when we first got it, it didn't have any sound. Yeah, that was really interesting. Do you want to have a go at a synopsis? 
it's not hard to explain in this in the same way that inception or tenet is hard to explain it's hard to explain because it's a relatively very simple straightforward story but it's it's a high concept film so the visualized nature of it of the sounds and the characters a little bit more hyper hyper realized than what you'd have in in a usual film i suppose so uh, yeah let's have a just okay. yeah go on okay give it a go so uh clay is the main character and he is an enforcer for the gods and he moves between different bodies so that's why he put, he's called a sleeve walker because the bodies are sleeves and he just moves between them so that he can do the jobs that he's set to do and this is his final job and he's got to protect protect this woman who he doesn't know why he has to protect her he's just told get this job done and then you get your exit which means he's then free so this is his this is his story of his one final job that was an elevator pitch that was that was all right wasn't it yeah. 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 You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna go yeah, it sounds like you've given that given that over and over. So that was pretty good. I mean I've watched it a lot. So. <laughs> Having watched it a lot, like how, how do you keep the excitement going to like actually seeing the real live premiere? I mean it, are you imagine you're gonna sit in and be like, Oh yeah, this happens, that happens, oh I know what he's gonna say, or does it still have kind of the same excitement as in anticipation? Uh, I mean, first of all, we, we haven't seen the full thing since 2019. So we, we finished our part in 20, uh, end of 2019, I think. I think one thing I'm trying to get really good at is like putting projects aside once we've finished. And then you really do get the excitement of seeing it again. What is so easy to do is sit there and kind of pick apart little things or like, oh, I'm not sure about that level. Or, did we really write that? I don't remember writing that. When obviously we did. There's no joy in that. And at, at the heart of it, Tom and I are just massive film nerds. We absolutely love film. We're storytellers who happen to speak the language of music. So we go into, we, we try to go into every screening, letting go of all our own issues and just watch it as movie lovers. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it. I think it's, I, I don't know how people are able to go into cinemas and be able to pick apart everything that they, that they do. Something that scares me is that Adam Driver aspect of hating everything that you do, but you don't want to see yourself in it. That for us is not why we would want to get into film. We absolutely want to make sure that we, we enjoy the end result as much as we enjoyed working working for it in the first place. And at the end of the day, Daisy and I, we are marrying the two things that we love the most, which is music and film. So if we can't find the enjoyment factor in that job, then probably not doing the right thing. Not to compare it to Adam Driver, by the way, because I'm pretty sure that there's other aspects that I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> didn't really give him much respect for in that little comparison. No, we knew what you meant. Yeah. He's got his thing. And it makes sense. I can, when I was younger, I wrote a couple scripts and one of them was made into a, a small film. And I think that was that was a very hard part for me was to just sit back and enjoy it as an audience member rather than as someone who worked on it maybe a little related i think there's there's also so many people online like it's it's a part of kind of online like film criticism of just picking things apart and finding issues you said it there's no enjoyment in that whether yeah. it's something you worked on or not i don't at this point having seen enough films i don't know why why bother if that's what you're going to do anyways absolutely it's a collaborative aspect, this, this thing that we do. So when, when we're going in, uh, when we're hearing any of the 
cues that we've written further down the line, it's going to conjure up those times in which we've been going back and forth with the directors and uh, taking notes and then striving striving to achieve the same goal, which is to make sure that the, the music is working with, with the narrative. Effectively, it should still also be able to remind us of the times when we're actually working together as teams. And it's something that Daisy and I really enjoy the most is, is having that team team building aspect of it and then talking it through. I mean, we're going to look for, we're looking forward to this premiere tomorrow because we're going to be seeing the directors and producers and the actors all, all together, socially distancing, but all, all, all together in this one place. So we're going to be able to like talk, talk this through and, you know, geek out about all of the different behind the scenes BTS aspects of it. Kind of exciting. It's funny that you mentioned like the picking apart of the film criticism. I think particularly for us with this film, it's such a bombastic, insane film and score that the thing we've said most to each other is, look, it's not for everyone. There'll be people that absolutely hate it. There'll be people that absolutely love it. We weren't trying to be clever or subtle because that wasn't our job in this film. So I think by this point, we've really let that go and it's gone, it's cool, it's not for everyone. We're really proud of it. The director loves it, the producer loves it. They're our bosses, you know, that's what's most important. And we'll just go along and enjoy ourselves. It makes sense. And I think that's such a good, healthy perspective because I've seen so many films that either I've disliked or that I've liked and so many other people don't. And it's for that exact reason that it's maybe not for a particular type of person, but a particular type of person is going to enjoy it more. And, you know, if you don't fit into that kind of set of criteria or likes, you won't. But I, I think having that in your head beforehand is, it's just such a good approach. Because I, I, I can imagine if you think that everything you make, everyone's going to like it. And if they don't, there's either something wrong with them or something wrong with you is no matter how good you are, just setting yourself up for disappointment. Sounds exhausting. Yeah. I really, really do find that some kind of excitement in being able to praise the risk takers. Even if I don't like what they've done, if I can still appreciate the risk aspect of what they've tried to, tried to achieve, then I will applaud that in itself, both risk takers and I love it. And yeah, happy days. Are there any are there any like risk takers that come to mind for you when you say that? Oh, composers. Yeah, do you mean composers? Composers, directors. I mean, Hilda's anyone. one that comes to mind, isn't she? I think with her Chernobyl score, making out making your own sound designs from the locate from the yeah. set location. That's really cool. I really like Marco Beltrami's kind of like. Uh, the way his his music kind kind of comes across is quite visceral, mm. and it's like a his his hybrid scores are not like other people's hybrid scores. They're very kind of like they grate against you, and I quite quite mm. like that abrasive nature of them. What's the Star Wars thing with Disney Plus? I've totally blanked. Oh, wait, oh the Mandalorian. It's got yeah. a bass recorder in it. I mean, if that's <laughs> not a risk, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you I mean, say, yeah, you mentioned that, and then Ludwig Göransson's most recent score for Tenet has been, as I've seen, has gotten, like, such a divisive reaction. And I think it's exactly, maybe not for the bass recorder reason, but it is quite risky and different, and 
I haven't seen the film, but just listening to it isn't exactly what you expect in a an action heist movie. I know that's kind of a gross oversimplification of the film. It's the clearest description I've heard of the film. <laughs> I think composing a score for a Christopher Nolan film has got to be a poison chalice because I can imagine as as he's such an artist, he's he's always going to have such a a pitching as to uh, as to the music in those those kind of films. And again, Ludwig's going to be that person like like us who's like it doesn't matter whether or not the half the audience hates it or not. I've got one person to please, and that's the, that's the director. That's all I care about. It's making sure that the director's happy and it works with the narrative. If the, if, if the people don't like it, it's not the problem. That's admirable for me. I never look at it that way, just because I'm, I'm coming at it from a very different angle, and often just from, really from the audience perspective. But that, that does make so much sense. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, it is nice for the composers to have people buying their album releases their score releases or getting 10 million streams or something but to me that always seems ancillary to actually doing a good job in the film first it almost doesn't matter if your music's really popular from the film if it doesn't work in the film or if the director hated working with you or hated what you did because you're composing for the film first I think um, I really love Daniel Pemberton because I feel like his, in the same way with Goranson, his scores are really different. He never has one sound. He's really great on Twitter because he, he shares a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and the way that he creates sound. I don't think he's really creating scores that anybody else is doing. They're not necessarily weird and crazy, not all of them. They're not the same as everything else. And um, I just really love that. I, I love just, yeah, like we said, the risk takers, composers that really serve the story rather than serving a genre of music. I think you'd be up for having a pint with Daniel as well, wouldn't you? Yeah, he seems cool. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, de he's definitely part of that list of people that we can admire for being able to take risks. He's also kind of one of those composers that when musicians and writers first come into this industry and they start wanting to work on film, they're often told to make sure that you know what you're good at, stick to your genre, stick to the thing that, 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 that makes it you. And when you listen to Daniel Pemberton's uh, repertoire and you think, well, what's him? Because he's good at it all, isn't he? It's, like, what? it's just all of it. And that's not just because we're hanging our, hanging our hat and crossing our fingers, because <laughs> our, our reels are a little bit all over the shop. So yeah, we do look, look to people, especially when we get told that we're like, yeah, but Pemberton. I think he's, he's such a good example for being really good at seemingly any genre. The fact that he's done some you know, major superhero films, but then also you listen to his score for Motherless Brooklyn, which is like a kind of modernized version of this like jazzy noir detective genre. And it's like, you shouldn't be able to do both of those really well. They're just so different, but he does it. And I think, I think like that's, it's so fun listening to some of a composer's works and seeing that ability. I watched this, uh, this short film that came out recently. I think it's called The Stuntman and it's, it's all shot vertically, directed by Damien Chazelle and oh, yeah. uh, Lauren Balfe is the composer. And the film basically, it's like every 45 seconds, it jumps from genre to genre so it starts off as this like modern thriller and then it's you know there's a wild west shootout and then there's like a 
60s French New Wave crime aspect, and listening to Lauren jumping across these super varied genres, and it's so seamless, that's the mark of someone who really knows what they're doing, because it's not like a feature film where he spent months and months doing it. It's it's a seven-minute short film that, who knows, he put together in a couple weeks, probably. It's just so cool to hear that. And so, yeah, hearing other composers do that, too, across features is, it's awesome. You recommend that short film, do you? I have uh, mixed feelings on the film itself. It's actually one that I have written something up about in one of my short film music articles, and I haven't gotten around to releasing it. But by the time this is released, that would have already been out. One of my views with, with short film is, unless it's just awful and there's nothing redeeming at all, when something's five minutes or 10 minutes, if there are worthwhile aspects to it, everyone can find five minutes to watch something. It's not the best short that I've seen. There, there are definitely interesting aspects and, and it being shot vertically does lend itself to some interesting shots that, I mean, you're literally never gonna see right now. Have I actually forwarded to you over any of our shorts? I think before this, you had sent me Satori, and then, gosh, this is maybe two or three months ago at this point, you'd sent me a few of them, and I'd watched uh, Home by 8.30. Annoyingly, that's actually one that I've, I've written something up about as well, that's in that article that I just, I haven't published yet. Had I timed things correctly, would have uh, would have been up. You could have seen it. Who's judging? Gr- grease the interview a little bit more, but <laughs> that suggests it's a good review. Interesting. Well, he's telling us about it, but he's not telling us what's written in it. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things for me, I I generally try to avoid giving bad reviews, like not to sugarcoat everything I hear. But it's like if I hear a score that I don't like or that don't find at least some interesting things to talk about, I'm just not going to write it because it's not like I'm a, a weekly critic getting paid by a publication. It's like, it's something that I'm doing because I'm interested because I don't think there are, there are enough people writing it about this sphere. I'm not going to waste my time being negative. There's too much negativity. You know, we're in a pandemic. I'll, I'll, I'll save it for later. Yeah, not agree more, yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that I was I was wondering about, and I'd actually like to to talk about the film uh, about Clay's redemption a little bit more and the score. But before that, what's your general collaborative approach? Because obviously most composers are individual people, and you have some composer duos, but it's it's still relatively rare. So I mean, how how do the two of you approach a film? How do we approach a film? It's never one thing. How did we approach Clay's redemption? God, it's so long ago. Sorry, Nick. I think there's, there's, <laughs> there's two aspects to it. There's the way that we collectively work, which may be, well, you know, the questions of do you work from script or do you write themes, all of that. In terms of working as a duo specifically, it's really shifted over the years. I think when we first started together, we had very different skill sets. And so it worked really well. We always used to describe it as like Tom would sketch and then I would colour in, and then we'd add more colours. But as we've worked together, we've really 
I think we've absorbed each other's skill sets. Well, so there's a lot of crossover, yeah. isn't there? It's a Venn diagram, yeah. but um, somewhere in the middle of that Venn diagram is the, the film scores score, results. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it it does depend very much on our kind of personal relationship with the film. So whichever one of us has feels they have the real connection, um, will probably start. We'll probably you know chuck some ideas down. I think the real the massive bonus of uh, working with a compose a partner and why I have no idea why no one else but well very few other people do it is that when you hit that writer's block you can uh, step up go make a cup of tea and the other person can sit down and carry on how, like how is that not the best thing in the world um, from a filmmaker's perspective knowing that there are two people that are going to be thinking about what kind of sounds uh, could be brought to the table for that story at any one time is is so much more of a benefit I mean I, I tend I tend to think about this kind of stuff before we started even writing any of the ideas or sketching stuff out. I'll start thinking about sound palettes in my head as I'm brushing my teeth before I get into bed, and when I do, I'm talking to Daisy about it. Not everyone has that kind of ha has that collaborative approach to being able to do those kind of things. The same with Daisy. Well, she, she'll you know suddenly just randomly in the middle of the day start talking to me about what might work and what wouldn't work, and at that point. The, the brain's already started sketching before we've started sit, sitting down at the keyboard and we've started uh, writing or, or at, the, at the piano or the guitar, whatever it is, you know, we're already starting to think about kind of what what's going to work. And the, the tricky nature of this, uh, the answer to this film is that they kind of reverse engineered the film. So we didn't have a script to read. Uh, they weren't able to kind of, they weren't really able to send us uh, rushes or anything like that. They were only able to kind of like send, what did they send us across? Like a um, pitch deck or something like that, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Where they were able to kind of like t tell us about the feel and the approach and they'd uh, tell us about basic descriptions of the characters. So we'd start, we'd, we'd write sketches and ideas depending on what they'd send, send across to us. Mm -hmm. It was really when we started working to uh, working to image on, on the screens uh, and figuring out what's going to work what's going to work best in different situations that the film really the film music really started coming to life for us. But it's quite tricky because in other films we've had a script, we've had fully fleshed out characters that we could start reading about. We've we're already reading about the subtext within those within those scenes. So we're all a step ahead in those other films. With this one, there was a jigsaw that was being pieced together as we're piecing the music together. Kind of wanky, didn't no, that's a really, that's a really good <laughs> well, That's exactly what it felt like. And I think because the director of this was so, uh, he's a big fan of themes and strong ideas. We started by writing themes, but it was very much like Tom would be like, I've got this really strong idea for this character. Do you mind if I just start? Whereas I might feel for another character, so I'm kind of coming at it from a different angle. But with everything, you know, we're sharing the composing, we're sharing, creating the sound palettes very much, um, with the exception of sort of saxophone and guitar, which I play saxophone, Tom plays guitar, and Tom does all of the drum programming. He's absolutely amazing. Pretty much everything else is whatever, whoever feels it, depending on the project. So we're already picking ourselves apart before it's, it's gone anywhere else filtering process like a nice vodka because you're self-filtering it sounds like it would be way more time consuming than if it was just one of you doing everything and sending it off i imagine that whatever you're sending off is then much more refined and also if you're 
you're avoiding that sitting alone with a queue for three hours because you can't quite get it right. The beginning of the three hours, you've just gone, can you just sit down and fix this? Because I don't know. And they're like, yeah, okay, fix. And then you send it off. It's so much less time in your own head. And it's something we've really learned over the last five years of working together is not to be in our own heads and just sort of go, I don't know what to do with this, or I think this is good. Can you confirm that for me, please? You know, it just, it's just a big time saver. And I think as, as two people that we're not in front of the camera people, we're very much, we like to kind of move away and, and create and work as a team. It's just a really good process for us. Yeah. Because we, 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 you can't do this without trust and we 100% trust each other. And if the other person says no, then you know they've got a really damn good reason and you might fight for it. But at some point you're like, okay, well, if you don't think it's not going to work, pretty much that director's not going to think it's going to work. So leave it, move on, done. That's, I think that's a really good point. So does that kind of trust that the two of you have built up kind of stop any sort of more heated moments where one of you is, is married to this idea and the other person is saying, no, that doesn't work or no, it, it doesn't work in this form? I think we definitely have heated moments because we really care passionately, passionately about what we're doing. And I wouldn't really, I wouldn't want to work with somebody that was a bit eh, about everything. So that's, that's cool. What we did do about God, three or four years ago is we implemented our system that we share with anybody that's working in partnerships. And it sounds very officey, but it's basically someone calls project manager. For example, if I have the relationship with the director and I've had like the big conversations, I'll be like, I feel like I've got a really good idea of what this is. I'm calling project manager. And pretty much the only reason, other than to be the main line of communication, the only reason is that you have veto power. So there is always a point in a project where if you're just at loggerheads and you just disagree, you can call veto and that's it. There's no big fight. There's no, you know, resentment or anything like that. Because you're like, well, there's a reason why you're project manager on this. You feel like you get it. Veto done. And again, then you move on. like a political veto in the fact that it's not something that we like to use uh, liberally it's it's kind of like a, relu- a reluctance in that we'll, we'll we'll spend a good good couple of hours shouting and screaming at each other throwing plates across the room and then someone will go do you know what i'm the project manager it's just the way it goes and that's how it happens. <laughs> just the ultimate trump card yeah probably don't leave that image to yeah, the rest of the <laughs> But yeah, it, it makes so much sense because the fact is we're only ever going to work on projects that we totally believe in, which means that we're totally invested in everything that we do. And that includes every single note that we play and every single note that we write mm-hmm. and the expression that's used. And we, we try to reduce the amount of whimsical nature about that to the point where, it's, where, where that second person can come in and say, why have you done that? what is the reason why and if there is no why that you can back it up with then it's probably a little bit weak and you need to you need to find a way in which you can rationalize it in some way and that's why i still don't understand why there's not more composers working in partnerships like daisy and i are because we often go go to these rooms full of full of other composers where they, they'll talk about the the intrinsic nature nature of writing for them is, is very personal it's like 
and often painful and painful that's how they describe it yeah. but you're working with you're not working for you as well you're working for a director you're working for a filmmaker producer the writer whoever it is that you're going to be sending sending your cues off to that's who you're working with this is just a little bit more of a i don't know refined approach i mean it's it's got to be working because you know, I, don't, I don't know how accurate the number is, but at least on IMDb, you have like, you have 31 titles, I think, that you've worked on together, which is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of hours in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> and where are yeah. I? Each other. Exactly. You haven't, you haven't killed each other. The, the scores keep coming out. So there's got to be something in there. I feel like it gets better. I feel like the more, I mean, as with any relationship, um, whether it's your, you know, your best mate or your writer, director, director, producer, you know, it does communication is everything. And the more that the, like Tom was saying that the better we can communicate with each other, the better we can communicate with our director or our producer, whoever we're working with or the editor, there's really no downside with that. I think, more, I think more people should do it. I'm, I'm a huge ad advocate. I think the fact that you can release your ego earlier is healthier for the project and it's healthier for you because you're not getting stuck inside your own head or worrying about it you're not as you know as so many composers say to us oh, i don't know if i could just let someone else work with me i'm too much of a control freak i'm a massive control freak she is don't roll your eyes but not in this because again like tom said it's not about us it's not for us it's for the story it's for the narrative and if we're doing it for us we're not doing our job and it's it's interesting you you point that uh, the control freak aspect of it out too because like at the end of the day you're making a score for a film and not to disparage directors but their whole role in some way is to be a control freak they're effectively in charge of everything so if they're able to delegate score there's there's always a a sense of release and trust so yeah I, I i think that makes a lot of sense and that that seems like a a healthy approach but also if you're a control freak as a composer at the end of the day the director is going to be sending you notes and it's not it's not like when you're in your composing duo where yeah you have more of a back and forth at the end of the day it's their film so you, you're you're kind of forced to relinquish control to an extent anyways how much respect to the directors for being able to do what, what he or she can do. I mean, it's it's those people that it's those people that we serve. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that we we, we just kind of like say uh, yes, sir, madam. But we'll do whatever you say. You know, it's, it's just one of those it's one of those kind of things where we we've already practiced the dialogue between each other. We'll continue that dialogue with the director as well. And I think the only time a relationship between composers and filmmakers break down is when that lack of communication is there. Mm. So that's one of the things that we, we kind of, we harvest the most out of any of our collaborations with the films that we've worked on, is to make sure that the people that we're working with are fundamentally their friends. Uh, Hans Zimmer likes to call them part of the band, you know, it's, it's, they're the people that we want to kind of go, go back and forth with. And, and so that's kind of why we want to make sure that when we're striving to do that same goal together, that we're doing it in the best way we possibly can do. That makes a lot of sense. And it seems like 
I, I don't want to keep saying the same thing, but it seems like it's it's obviously working because you're doing so many projects and they seem to be turning out really well. Obviously, I haven't seen all the films you've worked on or heard every score that you've done, but the shorts that I've seen all worked and if everything's happy on Clay's Redemption, what more can you ask for? That's cool and hopefully, hopefully some people seeing this or listening to this consider the idea of composer duos because there's a surprising lack of non-individual film composers out there. And I think especially when you compare it to bands over the last 70 years, those tend to be very collaborative processes. Maybe people see Wagner or all sorts of other classical composers coming before that and see kind of some of like the early foundational film composers and how they're all working at least as far as credit's given, all working individually. Maybe that's just a, a pattern and a trend that is kind of self-perpetuating. You know, it's really funny that you say that because that was exactly what put me off being a composer when I was like 16. And when I was a teenager, I was like an, a younger teenager. I was like, I want to be John Williams, I want to be a film composer. And then it's almost like the more that I learned, the more that I saw the same, like you said, Wagner, Beethoven, Mozart, the more that I saw the same composers, I built this image in my head of what it was. You know, sitting at a piano, blank sheet of paper, pencil, and I was like, that's not me. That's, I, I can't do that. That's not, I don't know how to do that. And it wasn't until I clocked on to the collaborative nature of it and the fact that you work as a team, even if you're not in a composer duo, you work with the director and the editor and the writer and the um, you know, sets and costumes, part of a whole thing. And for me, that's the, that's the foundation of joy in, in doing that. And I feel something I'm really passionate about is showing that process. I know Tom is as well, showing that process, being really open about it so that more people feel that it's an accessible career choice for them. Yeah, but there does seem to be a lack of footage of behind the scenes stuff for composers whereby you get to see behind the scenes, get to actually see uh, additional composers working on things, working in tandem with each other to try and contribute to something and then how the orchestrators and arrangers come in and then what it's like going into going into a studio. I managed to, again, like our first year of working together, I managed to find about two full-on YouTube videos of a, of a recording session and it took ages to find them as well. And all I want to see are what kind of notes they're taking. Who's taking the notes? What kind of notes are being given to them? Like, uh, what kind of things is the conductor saying to the composers? Who's on the microphone from the control desk? Who's going to be asking all sorts of questions? Like, all of that kind of stuff. I want to, I want to see that nitty-gritty kind of stuff. There's, there's very little of that still. I think it's, it's becoming more popular. And younger composers are being encouraged to create behind-the-scenes footage as they're scoring in case it helps with the PR later on. And it's something we do in every film anyway, just naturally. But there's still a habit of only filming the recording room, the orchestra, the conductor. That's not the only interesting bit. For me, that's not even the most interesting bit. And maybe that's because I'm a musician, you know, I've seen it, I've done it. I've, I, like Tom said, I want to know what's happening in the booth. Mm -hmm. Who are all these people? Like when I started, I had no idea. There's seven people in the recording booth. I'm like, but there's one composer and there's one person recording, so who are the other five? It's fascinating to sit and watch that. I would definitely encourage more composers to 
show a more all-round view of the process. Also, directors love it. They absolutely love it. They love having the footage and they love being there and the whole experience of it. So I don't know why we don't show more of it. Every time we've gone into a recording studio, we've always brought the directors with us. It's fun. It's really good fun. It's just... It's important to it's important to realise that there is a, a warts and all aspect of this that you shouldn't try and try and gloss over to then just here we go here's my magic piece of product that you don't know how it's made no I want to know how it's made I want, I'm more interested in how it's made now that's the kind of thing that you want to actually see nowadays. Well, I think even from a film music fan perspective, because there are so many people who truly just enjoy the the music of films as well just listening to it on their own and so i think there's an audience out there of people interested in how it's going and how it's made i mean daisy you mentioned that there is footage of the actual orchestra doing things and there's you, you see all sorts of photos of john williams composing those are cool but then it feels like from the outside that there's this black box where everything else is contained and you have no idea what's going on and the whole process behind it all. It's kind of what perpetuates this myth of genius is the not knowing. So therefore I'll assign the word genius to this person. And it's like, there's a little bit more to it than just calling someone a genius willy nilly. The fact is that they surround themselves with a team, but it's a collaborative process. There's so many people who are giving notes to and fro in this situation. And you can't just like, oh, the way that one person managed to control a whole 120 people in a in a studio they must be a genius it's like let's calm down a little bit let's try and let's be a little bit more realistic and it does go towards so many other mediums as well even authors writing novels yeah it is largely a creative output from one person but there are so many people who are also involved you have you have a, like an, an editor, hopefully, that you work with, you're comfortable with, and that's pushing back or helping shape things too. And, and that alone, I think, is, is just an aspect of the creative process that really gets overlooked. And I, I think there's always a, there's a very common narrative online, at least, that studio or editor, all this external involvement is hampering whatever is actually being made. Yeah, sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. But that blanket statement, I think, Tom, it perpetuates what you said of this genius mentality that the creator's the genius and everyone else is trying to stop them. Moving to your work on Clay's Redemption. Fortunately, I haven't seen the film, so I don't know how music all ties in. I've listened to the score a couple times, and so you can kind of clearly hear a few themes and hear a broader sense of a narrative going through. It is an interesting score because listening to it and, and kind of seeing some of the things that you've been posting, that it has this synthy electronic palette that's used in a, a darker and quite chaotic way. You two made it. Feel free to disagree with what I said because it's, it's yours and not mine. What was the specific approach? How did you come to land on that palette and style for the movie. I mean, firstly, um, who are we to tell you what you hear? I think that's, it's interesting to actually get that feedback. We were going for something not just straightforward synthesizer-based film score when looking to try and put as many rough edges and grain, grain into it as possible. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. 
The very first thing that we did was, I can't remember why either. Collectively, we were just like, this is what we want to do. Um, we knew that we didn't want to just use in the box existing sounds for everything. We didn't want it to be shiny. And even though it's a very neon kind of film, it's not shiny neon expensive like Tron or something. It's, it's got grain, it's got grit, it's the underworld. It doesn't sound like a score that is written on a grid. No, it is that chaotic is a really good word. I like that. But the, the first thing that we did was record a whole library of what we call saxophone madness. So I had my tenor, my tenor saxophone, and recorded a couple of nice melodies that might be themed, no one didn't really know, and then just loads of weird sounds. Everything that I was never taught to play on the saxophone when I was a kid, clicks and overtones and harsh, horrible noises. From that, we then manipulated that and created new sounds out of that. So that was our, our, so our starting point was very chaotic. We spent a whole day recording, like just recording banks of, of sounds on the instruments that you would not normally do, do on the instruments. And, and also for, for me as well, once I managed to get Daisy into this zone where she was, where she was making clicking and popping sounds that she would not normally make nor like to make in any other recording, I was like, great. Before I know it, she's like, behind the felt on the piano and like making making all sorts of different sounds there as well. It's always experiment. Lots of pulses on the strings and stuff. We've made the choice to really build from the ground up. Start from an organic place rather than from a synth place, even though we knew it was going to meet somewhere in the middle in the end. We also used baritone guitar because we just, just before we started working on the film, we had just come back from Bristol where our um, sound designer and sound, uh, audio engineer Dom Lancaster is based. I mean, he's, he's the other partner in 222. I saw this baritone guitar in his studio and I was like, can I use that for, for Place Redemption? And it's like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, just give me, give me back whenever. And before I knew it, I was like recording all of this new stuff. I mean, it's the same fingering style as, as playing an ordinary guitar. But when you're, when you're playing something and you're hearing a different sound come back at you, it makes you play differently. As we we're playing all of these things in, I was trying to get quite an overdriven heavy, heavy metal, not heavy metal, <laughs> <laughs> heavy metal sound, metallic sound. We're just sticking all of those in into into these banks alongside the saxophones, the pianos, and all of these percussive elements, and making sure that we can get those ready for when we're actually going to start writing some cues. The next step was to start stretching them out of place and adding all sorts of different processing mm. onto them to make them not sound like what they sounded like mm. as well. I think the the first theme or idea that we actually wrote, funnily enough, wasn't for a character. It was to kind of represent the city that they live in because it's all shot in dark alleyways with bright, bright lights or the top just out of shot or just at the top of the screen. It's very urban feels very grounded in this in a sort of smoky city way i think that was the first cue that we wrote yeah it was never allowed to spring it together i have to say nick it was really hard we we're listening to a lot of bernard <laughs> Hill. Uh, we, we we wanted we wanted to go old-fashioned film <laughs> it's like it's, it's a completely different world we can't do that kind of film noir. we have to do this this kind of thing instead but what's our temptation there? Because, uh, yeah, like they said, it's, there's a lot of smoky alleyways and hero up shots with Canary Wharf in the background. Or It's got some really cool visuals in the film. 
the temptation for composers is to do what might have already been done. I'm going to back, uh, backtrack a little from what I've just said because it's a, it's a little bit cheeky, but there, there is also that element of wanting to do something that other composers of this kind of electronic alongside the saxophone genre have done as well. We want to make sure that we're going to distance ourselves from any kind of comparison with uh, Vangelis or anything like that. It was, it was to make sure that we're doing something that has its own language, but served. served. Which is the language of the film. Yeah. Because yeah, because the film is, is not Blade Runner. So although the headline, you know, if you give it a little, a little elevator pitch for both stylistically, you'd be like, oh, that sounds really the same. They're just not. So it just would, it would have been so weird and wrong and incongruous, wouldn't it? Yeah. It had to be its own thing. But it's funny that you said the noir thing, because I think that's where the, there's this little angular, um, when we were doing the melody part of the saxophone madness, we really wanted it to have kind of the, this, um, have, the, have the tenor saxophone, because it's very close to a human voice, saxophone sounds very close to a human voice, but it also harks back to old school noir. But nothing in this world is pretty. Nothing is nice, nothing is sweet. So everything that we tried to write, if it was, with the exception of one theme, I would say, was angular in some way. So not not so that it's completely out of the box, not trying to you know, reinvent the wheel, but it has something that's slightly off about it. So when we were writing this city theme, amid all this sort of grainy atmosphere stuff, it has this just this little motif on the saxophone, which is just not, it's just slightly off, like emotionally off, hopefully. That was a plan anyway. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I don't even know if I, if I want to go as far as to say like some of the genesis in film noir, but to take like a, a discrete ingredient that you hear so often in that music of, of just the saxophone, not even the kind of more traditional playing of it. Like you're, you're just taking the instrument itself and, and so you have that little bit of identity and then just doing completely different things with it. Things that you would never have heard in those movies 70 years ago. It's a cool, quite subtle uh, homage to all of that. The film itself has neon going on, and I think for most people, when you hear, when you hear neon, you're thinking of, you know, like you mentioned, Tron, or some of the, the synthwave, new retrowave stuff that's really come out in the last like 10 years. The only other movie that I can think of that is similar to what you two are talking about is Only God Forgives and Cliff Martinez's score. There, there's like a lot of neon visual, but it's so it's also so dark and dirty and gritty. And that's also a film where like nothing positive happens at all. This is a, uh, a follow up to Drive. Is that right? Yeah. Do you, do you remember watching that? Right, well, God forgives. Only God forgives. Yeah. It was like on a third date. Sorry. Well, we didn't didn't live together at the time, and uh, he came over and we watched it. We didn't like it. <laughs> oh, I love Cliff Martinez. Yeah, no, Cliff Martinez is brilliant. Um, I just don't think we could really follow the film that well. Really. But yeah, from what from what you're saying, that's that was definitely very similar to our intention but, with yeah, this score. Yeah, what, what you what you see in in frame, that really does play a part in what you're going to be then hearing. You know, it's one of our fun, you know, fundamental things that we enjoy the most is, is being able to see what's going to be coming up on the screen so then we can react to that. It's a reactionary process. It's funny you mentioned like the retro synthwave. One of our 
characters, Una, who is she's like a she's like a joyfully insane villain, kind of cute and sweet, but she's completely crazy. She's uh, she was a starting process for us with all the crazy phonetic acts. It was her and her character that we we saw we saw this crazy aspect. That's our starting point for the film. We'll start with all of the, uh, the sax craziness. Yeah, she's like she's like an assassin who kills you with a smile. That's kind of her character. She's very towards kind of the anime side of it, I would say, of of sci-fi and fantasy in general. Like the way the way that um, you know her costume was put together and the way that she portrays it. Although we knew we didn't want to try and do the Stranger Things or the Tron, we did again want to bring in something of that. So we have this like kind of synthwave type sound that start that ne- basically never stays nice for very long. It's very tonal for a few seconds, but then you get, whenever it comes on, you get these underlayers that bring the chaos that is inside her mind. So again, it's another, like, we just wanted to heart to it a little bit, heart to the tradition, a little nod to the tradition. Yeah. But then the underlayers are dirty and weird and Definitely, sub-harmonizing it to, suggest that there's a bit more of a twisted nature to this character. The real enjoyment is just those first few bars of writing a piece of music for this character. And you imagine, this isn't just representing this character, but this is what I believe this character would be dancing to in a rave. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I was at when I was thinking, this, this is it, this is what she's going to be dancing to. It's an interesting and frustrating, frustrating aspect of, of hearing a score without seeing the film because you listen to kind of the, the narrative flow and depending on how the tracks are titled, like you can, you can get an idea for what's going on. I know exactly what motif you're talking about just because of how it shows up and, and what it's titled. That's really cool. And I, I do appreciate kind of the, the subtlety that's brought to representing a character. Cause I, I think for a lot of people, your idea of a theme for a character is like a, full-fledged melody that goes on for 15 or 30 seconds before it repeats or gets changed and having you know a, a sonic just a palette or a few mo- uh, notes to represent someone it's a I don't know in some ways a more interesting approach it's at the very least it's not as heavy-handed or overt that you know there's there's a little more subtlety there going on it's definitely it's a new it's a new approach for us. I can't think that we've done it on previous films. Like being so different with the palettes for each character. I think when we were doing, you know, Ask for Jane was definitely more traditional in that, you know, it was like a late sixties period drama thing. Almost like a late sixties period heist. Set in Chicago as well. But that was more traditional with the, you know, same same sound palette more or less, switching between jazz-ish. Kind of film noir jazz and yes, like spy noir. It, it was, spy it was, jazz. It was like a it was like a Harry Palmer Harry Palmer kind of spy spy sound going on in the late sixties. But then the more British invasion blues folk, there was still crossover, and that was definitely much more theme for the heist, a theme for the this character's love relationship affair thing. It was much more traditional in that sense. Yeah. So this has definitely been a departure. And what's been so beautiful about the project is the freedom that Carlos, the director, gave us, Carlos and Evo, the producer. You know, they really trust us. We worked with them quite a few times on a number of shorts, and this is the first feature. 
they really sort of said go big or go home and then gave us free reign really which was amazing and it's, it's such a privilege because it doesn't happen that often yeah allowing us freedom is a is, is a misnomer to suggest that we can do whatever we want you already heard that daisy is a she is quite a control freak so there is an element of confinement that we allow uh, ourselves to sit within otherwise we will go insane if we don't have those self-regulatory uh, nature by which we can produce what we can do but they're laid back as as far as producers and, uh, and directors are concerned they have this fetishistic enjoyment of being able to watch their own film that they haven't seen for ages as a as a new film with music because with a new experience. it's a new experience yeah. for them. i just want to watch it all in in, in tow so i'm not saying this is a good way to go um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of directors who be who be thinking to themselves, "Oh my God, I can do that! I want to I want to hear each and every cue as it's written." Which is also fine. That's absolutely fine. It's just that uh, these guys, there's a there's a different thing about them. That I'd love I'd love to see what they can do with a few million. If anyone's uh, listening or watching that has a few million to spare, there you go. That's got to be so nice because you hear more and more about temp music and how it's very limiting towards what they're able to do and really restrains kind of their approach. I saw a, a round table where I think it was Danny Elfman is like clearly upset about how that's come in. So that's got to be really nice for you to to not have those that restraint on top of all the other freedom and leeway you're given. I mean, we did temp film. But we just deleted that version immediately. <laughs> We're not against temp music, by the way. I don't think that it's fair to say that. There's some films that we've actually worked on where the temp has been really useful to, to be there, especially with time constraints as well. I was going to say it depends mm. why the temp is there. If it's yeah. an incredibly tight turnaround, I don't really know how you do it without temp unless you have a totally symbiotic relationship with the director or whoever the team is. If you've got a tight turnaround and you need to hit the beats, that they want, then you need to hit the beats that they want. And that's kind of one of the best ways of portraying that, especially if the communication's not easy. You know, if there are, there are more people involved or you're maybe far away, if you're not, if you can't be in the same room, I know none of us can be in the same room, but you know, in previous years, if you can't be in the same room, the, I think the real issue comes when they can't when you can't get to a place where you both understand why that temp was chosen if you get if you can have the conversation and it's really clear what the point of that is so is it that it was the right pace is it that it hit a particular beat at a particular time and was kind of fuzzy around the edges but that one beat that's what the director wants whatever the reason that's that our job is to replicate that not to replicate the temp I'm sure there are projects where you are told to re replicate the temp. We, thank goodness, have not had to do that yet no, or been asked to do that yet. But yeah, again, low leveling communication, as long as you're clear what it's telling you. We work in an industry which is a show don't tell industry. For the most part, directors get to do that showing. But when it comes to the uh, aspect of being able to actually tell the person uh, who's writing the music, what kind of thing they're looking for, it becomes very hard, especially if they don't speak a musical language. Sometimes it's worse when they do speak a musical language. It's just a lot quicker to kind of show them what they're, what they're thinking musically by using an example, and that's, abs mm -hmm. that's absolutely fine. But 
about 20 minutes ago, I mentioned about the, the, the communication being key as to how people work in a team. And three of the films that we've, we worked on this year alone have been key to communication between us and the directors and just knowing, uh, knowing from the outset before they've even started rolling any film that this is the story that they want to tell and this is kind of how our heads are already working with that so we can go back and forth with them. But the fact of the matter is, like the higher up you go, I suppose, the, the less of an opportunity you get to do that, the less opportunity mm -hmm. that you have for all of that time that you can surround yourself with. I think once we get there, we can report back to you, Nick, and let, us, <laughs> let, let, let you know how we're feeling about temp music then. As it stands at the moment, we get to have that time with a director where we can mm -hmm. communicate ideas with them and communicate sketches and tones and try new stuff out and it's it's probably one of the good things about being at this level you know it's, it's really kind of cool yeah working with indie directors you do get a lot more time to just talk learn about everything that's not on the screen even if those talks are just like geeking out about other people's films and not even talking about what you're going to work but we did that like um adam bachelor the director of story he would come over and we would just talk about other people's films the whole time and talk about what we loved growing, watching growing up together. And Perry from Home by 8.30 comes over, he, he's really cool about wanting to just talk about films that he's, he's gone to see, that he's looking forward to seeing. And then bye bye, got this film, bye. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like, it, it's really cool. It's, that's the kind of thing that we really appreciate right now. It's really annoying that that's the last thing that you've said because I love doing that too, going on and on about films, just ignoring whatever the purpose of a, a meeting or call is supposed to be. And I'd, I'd love to do that right now. And I hate to cut this short because I think we could have kept talking for another few hours. <laughs> like I said at the very beginning, I am so happy that the two of you came to talk with me. And I think this was a, a really nice chat. If you went on any longer, Daisy would be on Skyscanner looking up flights to Chicago. I was just going to say that. Yeah. But we'll schedule this re-chat for when we're in Chicago, when we're allowed to get on the plane. Don't worry, we'll finish it. Thank you so much for having us. It's been such a joy chatting to you. It's been really lovely. Yeah, thank you very much for looking after us, Nick. Don't even thank me. You you two are the ones doing me the favor. Thanks again. The two of you have a good night. I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks a lot, Nick. Cheers, Nick. You take care. Right. Take Bye. care. Bye.